All right, everyone, welcome into this episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. We're trying something new this week. Rick and I are doing this live, and we're going to try, Rick, to uh, upload this later into the podcast feed. But we thought it'd be good this week to give everybody a chance to listen in live here on Tuesday night. We didn't record it last night with everything with the football game going on, so we're doing it here tonight with a lot of college basketball going on right now. Syracuse and Louisville just ended. Rick, I don't know if you saw what just happened in that Louisville game, but that was a uh, spectacularly awful finish for Louisville, and they lost by one. Uh, but we are here to talk about Xavier, UConn, and Villanova coming up this week. Some things to recap, of course, with Xavier and UConn. Rick, let's get right into it with the UConn game. Xavier... On New Year's Eve, what a way to end 2022. Beats UConn at home. This game was tied with three minutes and 49 seconds left, I believe it was. Comes down the stretch. Xavier outscores UConn 12-2 in the final four minutes of the game to win the game by double digits. Let's get your overall thoughts, impressions, everything else of Xavier's win over UConn, Rick. Big win, first and foremost. Let's state the obvious. Uh the, the technical foul, I think you have to bring up when you talk about the end of this game. That foul by Dan Hurley was such a huge mistake and uh, really changed his team's chances of having any sort of realistic shot of winning the game. I mean, they were still in it for certain, but it went from being a, a coin flip of a game to Xavier was totally in control there at the end all of a sudden. So I think that was a big part of it. But look, anytime you can knock off the number two team in the country and you score 83 points while only making four three-pointers and you have one of your better defensive efforts of the season against probably the best offensive team that you've played all year, I think you'd have to point to that as a, a really good sign of where things are at. Yeah, no doubt. And the way that Jack Nungie was able to power through being sick, and well, you could tell before the game he wasn't out there for pregame warnups. Sean Miller said after the game he was asleep with a half hour to go before tip-off. And then to give you 24 minutes in this game, and Rick, you mentioned it in your post-game write-up on musketeerreport.com that this felt like a game that even though Jack Nungy might have only played 24 minutes, Xavier's not winning this game without the production they got out of Jack, both offensively and probably more importantly on the defensive end, not letting Sunogo and Klingon get everything that they wanted to get. Yeah, and I thought he really gave them trouble on the offensive end. He's the reason Xavier had so much offensive success early in the game because he was able to bring Sonogo out away from the basket. He was able to bring Klingon out away from the basket. Neither one of those guys were comfortable doing that, and it opened up a lot of different things for Xavier, especially that high-low game that they like to run, and, and it's part of why Zach Fremantle had such a good game too. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned on the defensive end, his length is, I think, kind of what you want against Sonogo. Now, you had some concerns coming in about how would Sonogo's strength pair up against Nunji, who has had some issues at times this season defending those bigger, stronger guys. But I think overall, you're not going to stop a guy like Sonogo, but what Xavier was able to do was make it difficult on him. And part of a big part of that was Jack Nunji's length giving him trouble around the basket. I mean, if you can hold a, a guy like Sonogo to 18 points on 17 shots, you feel really good about the job you did defensively. And that was kind of what Xavier did uh, across the board in this game. You, you look at the scoring numbers for UConn, and it's like, okay, Andre Jackson has 14, but he did it on 14 shots. And if you're playing UConn and you get Andre Jackson to take 12 threes, now, granted, he made four of them in this game. He didn't shoot a terrible percentage. You can live with how he shot if you're UConn. But, if, but ultimately, if that was UConn's most used plan of attack on offense was having Andre Jackson fire up threes against you, you won that battle as a defense from a strategy standpoint. And I thought that's what Xavier did a really good job of, was just playing to the scouting report. Hawkins had a tough game. He didn't get a lot of clean looks. He finished three for nine with 11 points. So Nogo had 18 points on 17 shots. Jackson has 14 points on 14 shots. None of those guys had an easy night on the offensive end. And that's really the best you can ask for right now from the Xavier defense. And one of the things, and you mentioned Dan Hur Hurley's technical foul, I want to circle back to that one real quick because as it relates to the offense and what you're just talking about, the foul discrepancy in this game. That was one of the big things. The national storylines after the game was how many more fouls 
foul shot, Xavier shot, then UConn in this one. Xavier finished 23 of 28, 82% from the foul line. UConn was just 4 of 9, but Rick, the way that it played out, it was really due to the style of the game, and seven of those nine free throws for UConn came off the hands of Jordan Hawkins. Andre Jackson was the only other UConn player that attempted a free throw in this game. He was 0 for 2, and like I said, UConn finishes 4 for 9. How did you see uh, the, the foul discrepancy in this game for people that might just be looking at the box score? It's such a stupid non-conversation, quite honestly. Like, they took 37 three-point shots. That's why they didn't get to the free throw line. It's that simple. Xavier plays a pack line defense. Their their idea to beat that was to shoot a lot of threes against it and not try to penetrate and not try to pound it inside. And as a result, they didn't get to the free throw line. Xavier's offense is anything but that this year. They only took 13 threes in this game. It's insane to think that Xavier was able to win a game by 10 against the number two team in the country and score 83 points when they only made three three-pointers but that's what or four three-pointers but that's what Xavier's been doing all season long they pound the ball inside every single game they drive aggressively and they get to the free throw line for the most part UConn decided not to do that that's not on anybody except for UConn in my opinion I mean that's just it's it's simple math when you take 37 threes there's not going to be a lot of possessions left to get to the free throw line no, I, I fully agree with you, but I think with the way that the narrative shifted after the game, not shifted necessarily, but with what Dan Hurley said in the post-game press conference and everything else, the comments, everybody going around, and UConn fans were very upset at how many foul shots Xavier shot, especially being at home, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, no, that's that's just the style of the game. That's the way it played out, and, and so it goes. That's how the chips fell. But let, let, Let's be very clear about one thing. Dan Hurley is a good basketball coach, but he is a clown. He is an absolute clown. Yeah. You think that this is something that he gets under control, or is this seriously something that will come back to buy? I mean, we have a big enough sample size now that I think we know the answer to that question, but it feels like in these big games, you come down to a game, an Elite Eight game in March, like, this can't be happening. Not that it can happen on New Year's Eve and a game for the top of the conference, but it really can't happen in March, and that's just such a wild card. Well, the crazy thing is, I think... He's almost like Draymond Green in the NBA. He whines so much and, and has so his antics are so over the top all the time that the refs are kind of like, eh, we'll just let it go because it's just Hurley being Hurley. And he gets away with a whole lot more than most coaches would. I mean, there was so many opportunities for him to get teed up throughout that game. He chose one of the worst times to finally go ahead and, and get rung up. But uh, he was, you know, he was acting like that all game. And it's just, he does it so often. And uh, honestly, it's a miracle that he doesn't get teed up more frequently. But I think a lot of the refs look at it kind of a, as a pride point on, on their side of things. Like, ah, I'm not going to let him get under my skin. I'm just going to ignore him. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because you know, I've mentioned it before. I, when I stand down there, under the, I'm under the uh, basket next to the visitor's bench. So I get to see Dan right there, you know, the whole game. And I'm, I'm watching him. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, he's getting a lot of leash. He's getting a lot of leash. And Yes, you could argue after the game that maybe he said what he said or maybe that wasn't the worst that he had acted all game. But I saw a lot of people saying, well, in that instance, is that did he really get teed up for saying unbelievable? Maybe he did, but that was the culmination of an entire game or at least an entire half's worth of complaints up until that point that it just it just had to happen. Yeah, and I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he got teed up. I mean, like, I don't... He's going to act surprised after the fact, but in reality, he knew it. He knew he was going to get teed up when he got teed up. You could see it on his face, and he had been cruising that way for a while. So, yeah, I mean, the guy's a clown. He's a really good basketball coach. There's no question about that, but the antics and the -the over-the-top stuff are what they are, and um, he deserved exactly the fate that his team got in this game. All right, so let's switch it to Xavier, and I want to start – at the end of the game and maybe work Hold on, Paul, yeah. let's also throw it out there for anyone that wants to chime in here wants oh, yeah. to get their thoughts ask questions go ahead and li- start lining up the requests we'll bring you in as you as you see something you want to talk about feel free to request in here and we'll bring you into the conversation yeah and like we said we are going to try and put this out into the podcast feed um we have not tried this before but 
Rick, I, I trust you, Rick. You'll, you'll be able to figure this one out, or Google will be able to figure one out either way. Well, I think I'll at least be able to stay awake for the majority of it, unlike certain Xavier Media members on Twitter. Whose phone dies and then who falls asleep at the same time. Sadly, unrecorded Twitter space that... Not now, naming any names. Now lost to history. Um, but the end of the game, Rick, is, is what I want to talk about here to, to get this Xavier discussion started. Where Xavier was tied at 71 with UConn at the under four media timeout. And it was a similar story to where we had seen earlier in the season where you talk about the games against Gonzaga or Indiana. Even the Duke game was close coming down the stretch, although Duke was pretty much in control for most of that game. And Sean Miller said after this game that he felt like the team has grown to a point that they can win this game where maybe he didn't feel like they could have been prepared to win that game back in November against Indiana or against Gonzaga, that now this team has grown together to a point where they can close it out at the end when it matters and win a game. And they did that. They ended the game on a 6-0 run, 12-2 overall, and they win the game by double digits to somebody that might not have watched the game. You'd say, did they blow out the number two team in the country? Well, this was tied with less than four minutes left. What did you see in this game that you might not have seen, Rick, against Indiana or against Gonzaga that they have flipped the switch here now being able to close out against Seton Hall, St. John's, and UConn? I don't know that it's as much about something Xavier did specifically in this game when Sean makes that comment as it is that they've just grown enough to the standpoint that you have trust in the guys, and they have trust in each other. They know where they're going. They know what they're running in those late-game situations. And and let's be honest, most of that is we're getting the ball to Sule Boom, and hopefully he's getting fouled and getting to the free-throw line. Or if not, you know, he's maybe uh, he's making a play for somebody else. But that's been a, a godsend to them late in games is having Sule Boom to rely on and put the ball in his hands for the most part. Um, obviously, Jerome Hunter in this game came up with a couple of big plays late that that helped him. And I'm sure we'll talk more about Jerome Hunter as we start taking taking some of these uh, calls here as we go on in the show. But um, I think the other side of it, too, defensively, this team is not great, but they're definitely better than that where they were in late November. There's no question about that. So uh, I think it's more about him having the trust in his team than it is any specific thing that they did or that they executed in this UConn game. Defensively, is there anything that stuck out to you that they've done differently? Is it, is it better communication or anything tactically that you've seen? Well, I think the one thing that they've found out is they're a better defensive team when Jerome Hunter is on the floor. And that's helped them in certain situations. They've been, when they've had trouble with certain matchups or they've just had a stretch where they need to get some stops, they've been having issues on the defensive end, going to that smaller lineup, playing Jerome a little bit more situationally for his defense and his rebounding has worked out well for them. So I think that's been part of it. But a lot of it is like we've talked about over the course of season, Sean Miller's teams are going to get better defensively. And this team may not have the highest upside on that end of the, the floor, but they are going to continue to improve incrementally just through sheer drill work every day in practice, getting better with the communication, understanding what they're going to do and being able to anticipate for any situation that they're faced with. The more you can do that and the more it just becomes natural to you, the faster you're able to play and the less you're thinking out on the floor. And that's what you're starting to see from these guys as they're getting a little bit better. And again, they're far from perfect. And there's going to be a game coming up here in the next week or two, I'm sure, where they lose or they have a close call against someone they shouldn't. And we point to, oh, they played really poor on the defensive end. So I don't think that's going anywhere necessarily just yet, but they've definitely shown improvement and it's getting better. And I think you're going to continue to see them make those baby steps towards the, the end of the season. Sule Boom finished with 11 points on three of 10 from the field. He did not make a three in this one. Any cause for concern there? He's been a little quiet here over the last couple of games. No, I mean, part of it is just playing better competition. You're going to be played against big-time guards every night in the Big East, and he has done so much to carry this team early in the season that I, you know, a, a night or two where someone else finally steps up and takes some of the load off him isn't a bad thing and isn't an unexpected thing. Now, if this extends and 
you know, he really struggles with his shot for a while, then I'd, I'd be a bit concerned. But you're talking about a guy that was shooting over 50% from three. I mean, with the with the amount of shots he's taken and the, the difficulty of some of the shots he's taken, that percentage is bound to come down to, to earth at some point. And I think you're just seeing some of a, a regression to the means at this sure. point. Uh, Zach Fremantle, 16 points, tied for the team lead with Colby Jones on 6 of 11 from the field. He did not officially attempt a three, but at the time, the Cintas Center crowd thought it was a three. His foot was on the line. Seems like, Rick, he can just step out and pick the right time to knock one down, don't you think? Zach's played really well for the most part this entire season, and he keeps getting better in terms of all the other things aside from scoring. And I thought this might have been his best performance on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, For the most part, I didn't see any egregious mistakes and in fact I saw some really good possessions on the defensive end for Zach and and like you said he was super efficient on the offensive end going six of 11 from the field and four of five at the free throw line has another double double you know Zach is turning into the player that we thought he would be last year and I think a a lot of last year had to do with an injury for Zach I mean it just it really slowed him down got him behind the eight ball and I think once he he came back and he wasn't able to do the things that he was used to be being able to do he got frustrated and and he probably let that get the best of him to some extent and and obviously there was a lot of frustration going around in last year's locker room so he wasn't alone in that but uh but he's definitely been playing well around the rest of the team Colby Jones finished with 16 he was 7 of 10 from the field two of four from three had four rebounds five assists colby again sort of the same vein of what i was talking about with zach's one three that we all thought he made at the time it just seems like maybe colby jones is starting to find his rhythm here over the last month where we talked so much in the preseason can colby step up when the team needs him can he be more assertive be more aggressive and he just glides around the court to the point where he's not always that assertive. Sometimes he's, he's quiet, but he quietly, consistently gets the job done. Yeah, I didn't think this was one of his better games, though. With the uh, turnovers, there were some, some miscues for certain on the offensive end, and that's something that he's been really good with for the most part this season. He and Sule have done a good job of taking care of the ball. You don't want to see him start slipping – back into that mode and Big East play like he, he had last year where all of a sudden you look up at the end of the game and he's got four or five turnovers each game. That was something that plagued him last year. A lot of them are are kind of just silly, careless things that you can clean up pretty easily. Um, again, four turnovers in this game. I'd like to see him clean that up. But yeah, aside from that, the 16 points and, and five assists were great. Seven of 10 from the field. It was good. So um, the one thing I will say, Rick, I know you weren't there on Saturday, but the one thing I will say about the environment, I saw a lot of people talking about how good the crowd was, and I even tweeted after the game about it. And I, I do want to say that I felt like, and I tweeted this, that the crowd and the environment at Cintas was the best that it had been since the Villanova uh, game back in 2016. I don't think it was better than the Villanova game. I think it would be hard to top that Villanova game without a full student section, it just felt like maybe that was a little bit that was missing from it. Uh, but I thought in those five or six years, however long it's been, I lost track of time, how long it's been since then, um, it, it did feel like it was just, Cintas is just, for lack of a better term, Rick, it, it's back. If it, if it was ever not, it, it's back. Oh, Xavier is just a bear to beat at Cintas once again. And that's why you almost, have to take this result with like some grain of salt. You know, I mean, it's a huge win for Xavier. There's no question about it. But like people that are starting to to question UConn and things like that, it's like, well, hold on. Like playing at playing at Xavier is really difficult for any team in the country. Doesn't matter who it is. And like, I don't think it's an indictment on UConn that they lost a game by ten to Xavier. That's that is playing at the Centos Center is going to be an impossible place for anyone to play going forward it looks like that's just it's been that way for years and years they had slipped a little bit but it's right back to being that same place that it was and the the fan energy is just off the charts right now all right we have the xavier professor in here so i'm going to add him in i'm assuming i think i've heard this person speak before i think it's him but i don't know i don't want to stay for sure connecting all right xavier professor can you hear us 
Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Can hear you. What do you got for us? Um, so now that we've survived St. John's, Seton Hall, and UConn, which I think represents some pretty tough matchups for X, who's the toughest matchup left? Like, not the strongest team still on the record, but, like, I was worried about St. John's pace. I was worried about Seton Hall's defense. I was worried about UConn just their size. In terms from a matchup perspective, who's the toughest team left? Um, Rick, go ahead. I think I have an answer to this, but go ahead. I would say Creighton, I think, um, for two reasons mainly. One is that Creighton wants to beat you from three-point range. They're going to fire up a lot of threes. That's what their system is designed to do. Xavier has had some issues with that, obviously, when you look at their three-point percentage defense this year. They're 311th in the country right now, allowing teams to shoot 37% from beyond the arc. The other reason that I'd be a little bit concerned is Xavier's weakest link, and, and we've talked about him playing better defensively, but their weakest link on the defensive side has been Zach Fremantle for the most part. If you have a four-man which can stretch the floor a little bit and can score, they can take advantage of that matchup. And I think Creighton can do that with multiple guys. They can put Shireman there. They can put Kaluma there. Uh, they can give you some trouble at that spot, and, and I, I don't know how well Zach is going to be able to match up. So I think I would lean Creek. I was just offensively going to say Marquette only because of how well they've been able to score the ball this year, and if they can get hot and give Xavier's defense some trouble, um, that, that could be an issue for Xavier. But at the same time, Marquette's sort of along the same Xavier line where they score a lot, but they don't really defend a lot. Yeah, and they, they shoot the three okay. They're, they're a decent three-point shooting team. So I, I could see Marquette. I mean, look, most of these teams in the conference, aside from Georgetown and maybe Butler and St. John's this year, and DePaul, of course, but DePaul's back, but they're, they're still probably not the best team in the conference. I, I would say, you know, most of these, these other games are going to be difficult games, especially when you play them on the road. Yeah. I like I don't I guess my point is I don't know that there's any any one matchup that stands out too much from the rest. Like there are definitely ones that are a little bit better and a little bit worse than others, but I think like most of these teams that are going to that are going to be in those top 6 or so spots in the conference are all going to be pretty similar especially when you're playing them on the road. Xavier professor, cool. do you have anything else? Um one other minor question. This is looking a little bit ahead. Um Assuming Col- this is Colby's last season with X, uh, who goes higher in the draft, him or Arthur Kaluma? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not as big of a draft guy, admittedly, as as Rick, you might be. No, I, I have no yeah, idea. I, I have, <laughs> no, he legitimately, yeah, I, I don't. I will, I'll say Colby. Go, I'll say Colby goes higher. Yeah, I, I've seen Colby start to be project. We're, we've gotten to the point now with Colby where you're starting to see more mock drafts with him than without him over the last week, two weeks, maybe three weeks that I've, I've looked at a couple of them. I don't know when they've been updated, but yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. admit. I don't know that either is a great NBA prospect, yeah. honestly. Yeah. All right, well, that's all I got. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let's talk about Villanova. Um Coming up this week, Xavier has not. Obviously, we don't need to go on too much. We, everybody here listening knows that Xavier's never won at Villanova since joining the Big East. But this is a Villanova team, Rick, that as wild as this sounds, they need to get some wins on their resume to feel good about the tournament. Because right now, this is not a tournament team. Yeah, they really need to make up some ground. They will play Georgetown tomorrow. We're recording this on Tuesday night. They'll record. They'll play Georgetown at Georgetown tomorrow, and then they'll host Xavier on Saturday. And that's a really important game for them. And they're not, I wouldn't say they're quite in desperation mode yet, but to some extent, they definitely need to pile up these quad one opportunities. And Xavier would represent that even as a home game for them. So, you know, it's it's not the same Villanova team that you've faced in years past, but it's still a team that's playing much better basketball than it was in November when they had lost four straight and everyone thought they were they were done and, and had completely written them off. They did get better when they got Cam Whitmore back from injury, and they are definitely a team that will scare you. Now, I think for Xavier, the biggest thing for them is going to be that it's not the same type of three-point shooting Villanova team 
that you've faced in years past. And overall, I think that makes it a better matchup for Xavier than it's been in past years. But you still know what that building represents to Xavier since they've joined the Big E. So it's not going to be an easy win. Absolutely not. Um, The other thing, too, about Villanova, Justin Moore, he is back and practicing, but it does not sound like he's fully available yet. (laughs) Does this end up being the... Justin Moore is back game. I doubt it from the way I've I've read this week. But, man, wouldn't that be the way it goes? Oh, I mean, especially if you add that in to just what already exists in terms of this being a good spot game for Villanova. I mean, you're talking about Xavier coming off a massive win at home, going on to the road at a place where they've really struggled at in the past. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not a trap game because you're not going to be overlooking Villanova on the road, but it's just a bad spot game, especially if you're a better and you're, you're looking for some value. I think a lot of people will be betting on Villanova in this matchup. If you add Justin Moore to that, man, it's going to, it's going to be a lot of things going in Villanova's favor coming into this game in terms of it being a, a good quote unquote spot for them. All right. We have a couple of people joining in. I'll go by order of, of request. Nolan, I see you. And then Adam, we're going to get to you here in just a second. Let's see Nolan. Nolan's been waiting for a little while. Hi, how's it going? Thanks. Appreciate it. Nolan, what do you got? Yeah, just going back to some of those foul comments against UConn. I think that, yeah, you could look at a box score to help depict a game, but it's not obviously the full picture. And you guys kind of spoke to it too, but what Xavier really did a good job was exploiting the way that UConn was playing. I think UConn wasn't used to having Sonogo so far out, extended from the basket, guarding Jack up top that it really opened up the inside of the paint. And when you have a defense that's so aggressive with the guards playing high ball pressure, when they get beat, there's no last resort. So what ended up happening when Zach had so much success in the first half was finding him down low all by himself, you know, creating big mismatches for the other fours on UConn squad. And it put them in foul trouble early, and I think that's what ultimately helped Xavier get down, uh, you know, secure the lead as they went down the final end. And then last thing, Paul, to speak to something you said, big 50, Zach Fremantle, knocking down these dagger threes at least once per game. (laughs) It seems so refreshing to sit back and watch him take quality shots and make quality shots, which is reflective in the percentage, compared to last season with steals, green light, and anybody, especially Hunter, willing to shoot the ball, able to shoot the ball. I think it's been a big change for the Musketeers. Well, yeah, I I think you're exactly right, Nolan, because – Last year or in years past where you see Zach, he might take three, four, five threes in a game and maybe one of them's contested and it's just because they've settled for that with five or six seconds left on the shot clock. Whereas now, if he takes one a game, it's because he's open at the top of the key or wherever he is. We've seen a lot of them from straight away. And he's wide open. It's at an opportune point in the game. And he's confident in it because he's done it for years. And he can knock it down. And it's, like you said, refreshing to see the quality of the look that he's taking and he's not settling for it. They're getting the look because maybe the the defensive effort isn't there from the opposition because they're not stepping out to respect him the way they might have had to in years past where you have to go out there and, and try and force it on the perimeter and take another shot, take another shot, take another shot. Here, Maybe we just take one a game and you're knocking it down when you have to. Yeah, and I think that kind of speaks to the um, kind of the matchup scenario when you're talking about who matches up well with X and who X matches up well against. The balance of this team is really the strong suit. I know that Rick had some concerns of do we have a go-to score or who's going to be able to pick up these minutes in crunch time or the possessions in crunch time. And yeah, Sule's done a lot of that, but also like games like this, Sule didn't necessarily fill it up from the box sheet or you know box score standpoint. But it takes a whole lot of pressure off everybody else trying to find their shot or hunt their shot towards the end of the game. I don't know. I just feel like Xavier had been that way with Scruggs and Najee for a while. All right, Nolan. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I think even going back to that Zach Fremantle point and the freeing him up for like one, three inopportune moments, um, we didn't talk about the St. John's game yet uh, that the all access. And if you go back to there was a point at the four minute mark of that game. Uh, around the four-minute mark, where 
Xavier was up by, I think it was seven at the time, and it's getting late in the shot clock. They had an underneath out-of-bounds play. Nothing was really going, so with about maybe 13 seconds left on the shot clock, uh, Sean tells them to tap the head, which is a symbol for, hey, we, we got you know got to hurry up and get a shot here. It's getting late in the shot clock. He, he gets a 1-4 flat set, brings Zach up to set a ball screen for Sule, runs a little pick-and-pop action, gets a wide-open three for Zach. And it's like he orchestrated the whole thing on the fly. You could hear him calling it out on the fly on the broadcast. And uh, it was all intentionally run to get Zach a wide-open three. So it, it's certainly not that Sean doesn't trust Zach to shoot an open three and take good looks. It's just they've got him focused on doing what he's most successful at, and it's definitely worked out best for everybody. Have we not podcasted since All Access? No, we haven't. We podcasted right before it, and then I did a, a Twitter Spaces after ah, it. That was, right. you know, a, yeah, a brief Twitter Spaces. Right. So. All right, Adam, you're up. What do we got? Hey, guys, what's going on? What's going on? Rick, I had a question for you, and obviously we're we're a little ways away from it. Um, and I know you've covered the recruiting for a really long time, but the the potential turnover on the roster after this season, you know, when you think about it, you're for sure going to lose Sule and Kunkel. Jack is most likely done. I think. Um, I, I don't know if if Fremantle's going to want to take advantage of the COVID year. Colby could go pro. And then you got guys like Kiki, Cesar, Deontay, and Elijah who realistically, you know, if they don't continue to play very much, they might want to go play somewhere else. You could realistically have six or seven scholarships available uh, for next year. Has, has that ever happened before since you've been covering recruiting? Does this have the potential to be one of the, the weirdest kind of roster turnover, turnovers that you've seen? Adam, first of all, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Did you intentionally leave out a certain somebody? Who did I leave out? Jerome Dur- Hunter. Was that intentional? Well, I, I need to find out if Jerome has a year left. I'm not even sure. Does he, he does. Okay. He does. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that changes things because I think Jerome, Jerome. Well, well, does he does he use it? Is the question. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I think, think he's so having too. fun. I think so too. All right, I just thought because I knew we, it's been a big topic of conversation on the board this week about Jerome potentially coming back next year. So I knew people would be interested if you left that name out intentionally. No, that was a, that was uh, a mistake but, on my part. I appreciate you picking me up. Yeah, to your point, there hasn't been turnover like that i don't think since i've been covering the team i started in chris's second year you know i was i was doing stuff for snow chris's first year and i took over the site chris's second year and since then i mean when when you had the last transition between the two coaches it was definitely a a lot smoother from a roster standpoint because travis had helped recruit a lot of the top guys that were incoming to that that last Chris Mack class, and, and really that final Chris Mack class was was the class that they really didn't have much of anything. So he was able to keep some of the guys that were already in the program. There wasn't much to speak of in that. I think it was 2018 recruiting class, uh, the one that ended up being like Keontae Kennedy uh, and uh, maybe Elias Harden or something like that. But but yeah, so I, I don't think this has ever happened before in terms of this type of turnover, and it's kind of what makes this season a little bit interesting. Adam, because they had an option this offseason, whether they wanted to blow it up, which I think most people, including myself, quite honestly, thought that they might need to have more roster turnover to have the type of success or or start building towards the type of success that you'd want at Xavier. And they looked at what they had and said, you know what? I think this is a good group of guys. I think we can win enough with them, and I think they'll start building our culture the way we want it set forth in motion. And and so they stuck with these guys and just added Sule Boom, essentially. And it has definitely worked out. There's no question that they made the right decision for this season. And then now you you look at, okay, but what does that mean for next year? Because had they started blowing it up a little bit earlier and bringing in more guys, maybe you don't have as much turnover for next year, uh, but I think at this point, with the way this season is going, you take that trade off because this is looking like it it couldn't end up as a, a special season and, and you could have potentially top four seeds. So I think what we'll probably see now, Adam, is you've got a, a good four-man freshman class coming in. I think you're going to see them look for another overseas prospect to bring into that class. And I think you're looking for as many as 
two or three guys in the transfer portal next spring. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. And I also like what you said, the fact that if you if you can do something special this year, you know, fool around and maybe win a Big East championship or or make a run in the NCAA tournament, I think that also takes a little bit more pressure off next year. And maybe you can say, All right, we're we're gonna we're gonna play some young guys and we're gonna really develop something. I don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of thinking about the future. I know that's probably not the best thing to do right now in the middle of the season with the way they're playing, but I am curious of of kind of what it might look like next year. Well, I think it's on a lot of people's minds, and that's interesting. It's it's a great point. You probably really need to make the NCAA tournament this year, or at least make it as fast as you can, whether that was this year or next year. Whatever the path to that was, I think it was smart to try to take that path, and that's what they've clearly done because they clearly look at like a tournament team right now, barring a collapse and, and potentially even a, a top-four seed at this yeah. point. All right. That's all I got. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining, sure. A.B. Real quick while we're on that, and Josh, I see you've requested, and Adam, I, I feel free to stay on here for a second with this because I'd kind of like to hear where both of you guys think. I had a question in. Um, Troy tweeted at me just now and said, how many Big East wins for X to feel like they're in line for a protected seed, which is top four or above? Um, th- there's been a great thread, and I, I'm sorry I'm not giving credit to whoever it is on Musketeer Report that has been continuously posting it. But going and, and looking at the percentages rising of how many wins Xavier is projected to get in the Big East, right now, if you, if you ask me, Paul, how many wins will Xavier finish with in the Big East, if you ask me to put a number to it, I would probably say 14. Um, is that good enough for a top four seed? I don't know. Probably, I mean, obviously depends on how you get to that number. But, yeah, go ahead. Um. You know, I'm I'm just kind of looking at Ken Palm right now, and Ken Palm's got him projected to to win 14. Um, I would say, you know, you win like your your eight home games in conference, and then you know you still get to go to DePaul. That would get you to nine. I'd feel pretty good about 13 Big East wins, um, making you safe for the NCAA tournament, but. You know, who knows? I, You know, you start to look around the rest of the Big East and like, yeah, I think you can go on the road and beat Butler. You can go on the road and beat the ball. It's probably going to be, you know, difficult to to, run, to to go into Villanova, to go into Creighton, to go into Marquette, to go into Providence. Um, so there's still a lot of tough games out there on this roster. But I do think it's beneficial that, like, you've got some quad one opportunities that you can really rack up. And I think if you can take care of some of those quad ones and really bolster that resume, you've got one of the best wins that you can have in all of college basketball right now, beating UConn. So they got a lot going for them in that front. Rick, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously I've, I know the, the thread you're talking about, I think now has Xavier as 14 wins being the most probable outcome at, at this point. So yeah, I think that's where the starting point is now. If you're, you're being an optimistic Xavier fan or follower is, is them getting to 14 wins and there's a legit possibility that they win 15 games now, or, or potentially even more than that, which would be crazy to think about coming into the season. So uh, they're in a really good spot that I think they're definitely going to be in the tournament as for whether they would be a protected seed, I think I'd probably look at a team like Providence from last year. Providence ended up as a four seed, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Last season. Yeah, they're a four seed. And just looking at Providence's run last year, they ended up 24 and four overall, 14 and three in the conference. Now, obviously, that's a little bit different because they didn't play all, you know, full 20 game conference slate there. And uh, they didn't maybe have some of the marquee wins in the non-conference, but Xavier's kind of in a similar boat. They didn't stack those marquee wins that we talked about them potentially having those opportunities to when you faced Gonzaga and you faced Duke and, and all of that. So I don't know that 14 wins for the Xavier team necessarily gets them a top four seed, but I think you're right in that range of probably four to six at that point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. I, and it's wild to think about when you look about at, at just how this team is setting up for a run down the stretch. And I mentioned this the other night. But right now, 
Xavier's hit four Big East wins. They're 4-0. It's the first time that Xavier has started 4-0. And I probably should have mentioned this off the top, but uh, it's the first time Xavier's 4-0 since joining the Big East. Last year, they won eight games in the Big East, so they're halfway to their win total from 2022. 2021, they won six games. 2020, they won eight games. And 2019, they won nine games. So they are right now four games into their Big East schedule on January 3rd, just about halfway to every win total in the Big East in the last four seasons. And the way that the confidence has been built around this program now in the last month and a half, you just have this feeling that they're not going anywhere, right? As long as there's nothing catastrophic, as long as the durability is there, that we have seen this team get better and better instead of get tighter. So, yeah, for sure. And, and it's also worth pointing out that like last year you lost some games to teams that were not NCAA tournament teams. I think this year's team has the ability to beat the teams that are not going to be in the NCAA tournament. And if you're sitting there at the end of the year, and your losses are to Indiana, Duke, Gonzaga, maybe on the road at UConn or Marquette or Creighton, teams that are going to be in the NCAA tournament, you would think. Like, that's a lot. That's a much different scenario from last year where, you know, you lost to DePaul and you lost to some of these other teams that that weren't NCAA tournament teams. Yep. Yeah, I I agree. I think the consistency of the way they go about scoring their points um, just – Doing it through high low stuff, pounding the ball inside, really drive. Well, as Sean Miller would say, work in the middle third um, on the offensive end, and and not relying so much on the three point shot just makes them a lot more consistent, especially when they go on the road and play the teams that you're talking about there, Adam, like the DePauls and the Georgetowns of the world. You just don't worry nearly as much about those games with this team because of how consistent their offensive performances have been. But one other question that I had with you, Rick, looking at the rest of the schedule, you have Villanova, Creighton, and Marquette here in the next three, right? And then you have DePaul and Georgetown. This next three, these next three games, this stretch of games here, and even in the rest of January, I mean, Connecticut and Creighton to finish out the month of January, this whole month of January, we could be sitting here on February 1st, depending on how things shake out. You could be talking about a team that's, as wild as this is to say, and I know I'm going to excite some people by saying this, but when you're talking about a, a consistent top 10 team, if they go six and two in that stretch. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I think these next three games are important because they're big games, but you have a really good opportunity to perform well. I mean, two and one over the next three games is a realistic possibility, I think, for this team. In fact, I think a lot of fans would think that's a, that's a probable outcome. And so if you, I mean, if you go two and one against these next three games, you're sitting in a really good spot in terms of where you're at in the conference, because then you have that break with DePaul and home against Georgetown as your next two games. You got to assume both of them are wins. So, I mean, if you get off to that eight and one start in Big East play, you're sitting in a a fantastic spot. And I, I should say they have seven games here in the month of January. So I'm doing my math wrong, but no, we don't do public we, we math do on this podcast. Do math in this podcast, absolutely not. I, I want to. If, if Baum is still there, I'd actually really like to get his thoughts on the all access game because I know I haven't talked to him since that happened. Yeah, I mean, I I loved it, and I talked to to Sean sort of one on one before they left for St. John's, and like he, he was pretty honest and open about the fact that he was absolutely dreading doing it. Um, he actually, they did something interesting that I'm sure you noticed, but they went with plays in their waistbands because I don't think Sean wanted their callouts being publicized, which was interesting. Um, but yeah, I thought it was cool to be inside the huddles. I love that the huddles were like a conversation. I thought it was hilarious when Sean was just like, Adam, you got to shut up and let me go here, dude. Um, but Sean like it was super interesting to hear him coach and like the the stuff that he thinks about and the stuff that he thinks is important and then conversely you know I know that coaching is is a super hard job I would never want to do it but like 
poor Mike Anderson, man. Like he, yeah. he did not, you had Sean on one side, like thinking things through talking about strategy and how he wanted to attack them. And then on the other side, it was like, you guys got to move. We want to turn it into a street fight. And that was like, that was the extent of the coaching on St. John's bench. So um, it's going to be really interesting who the Big East goes to next because I think the only programs left that haven't done the all-access now are UConn and Villanova, if I'm not mistaken. Could you imagine Hurley doing that? I can't, but Me I think that the Big East is basically going to be like, look, everyone else has done this. And if, and if he doesn't do it, then people are essentially going to call him – you know, a giant sissy. I'd use different words, but I know this is going to be archived somewhere. But like, yeah, this is mic'd up all access musketeer report. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Baum, would you agree to wear a wire for a Xavier game at the Centaur Center up in our little media? Yeah, bunker? only if it was a game where you were there with me. Yeah, well, that's the problem is that's the only chance of you getting in trouble. <laughs> Most of it would be us talking about gambling and the live lines and like that. So <laughs> it would, people would be entertained. I'm sure. Yeah. Or, or, or not one of or the not, two. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not nearly as interesting as most people would like <laughs> it to be. What um, were your thoughts on the, on the all access? Yeah. I mean, I thought you laid it out really well. I thought Sean was just, those things are always great. I tweeted this out that I thought, I think it's the best thing going in sports media in terms of production quality and actually giving value to the people that are watching. There's nothing I watch that I feel like I get more out of. And I find more interesting than that in all of sports media, but with all the different ways they're trying to do second stream or, uh, you know, second, um, second, uh, what do you call it when you get out on another? Yeah, exactly. Just extra broadcasts of the game. Live broadcast. We don't do live vocab (laughs) on this podcast. Uh, second screens is what I was trying to get out, but um, what, within an era where they're doing all of these and they're doing these, you know, Pat McAfee on the sideline doing a broadcast for uh, the the college football playoff games and all of that, I think the all access broadcasts on FS1 are better than any of those things. So they're always interesting. I really enjoy them, but Sean Miller's was the best one that I've watched. I thought just because he is a total basketball savant. It, it is wild to watch how quickly his brain is processing things and the stuff he's constantly thinking about, like when he knew exactly when to expect them to be switching into their matchup yeah. zone. And he like literally guessed it on the exact possession was uh, hilarious to listen to. So I thought it was just a, a really fun and entertaining watch throughout the whole thing. And, and there was a lot of good stuff for fans to take away from it. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I got a little bit confused some people like sending me messages on, on Twitter about how they didn't like it. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like it's, it's something at the very least, it's something different. And I know broadcasters have a hard job too. And, and they have a job to do, but it's like, God, we've seen thousands of just play by play and color guys. And it's like to, to be able to switch it up every once in a while and have something different and have like a view of the game that you don't normally see to me, it's like, it's, it's gold. Oh, no doubt. I mean, think about being the person who was sitting at home that night thinking, I really wish I was listening to Dickie Simpkins instead of Sean Miller. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. I'm going to try Josh again here. I'm not going to hit the – there we go. I think I think he's in. There we go. Josh, you there? I'm sorry. There we are. All right. Glad I'm finally in. And totally fine, Paul. I've got the uh, fat thumb issue myself. Um, <laughs> the, the question I've got, you guys were talking about the NCAA tournament, um, likelihood for Xavier to get in. My question relates to the tournament, but on a larger scale. And, of course, the bigger headlines – with the tournament today was the NCAA recommending expanding all their championships by 25%. That could possibly include the basketball tournaments as well. And obviously they get a lot of reactions when it could possibly possibly mean up to 90 teams in March madness. Now, of course, Mario Mercurio uh, had his thoughts on that as well. Rick, I saw you retweeted that as well. I share my thoughts on, um, on a musketeer report as well. I kind of wanted to get your thoughts just, a, do you feel like the tournament should be expanded? And B, 
What do you think about Mario's thoughts on possibly expanding non-conference play or, or just making tweaks to that uh, as it relates to maybe giving a chance for uh, uh, more teams to get in the big dance? Yeah, I, I retweeted that that uh, tweet by Mario, and mostly just because I thought it was fascinating in a, a sports media world on Twitter where everything's just a total echo chamber and everybody was immediately rushing to to bash the NCAA and, and crush the idea of expanding the tournament. I thought it was interesting that someone who actually does this for their job and is recognized as one of the best in the country at it had a, a totally different take. So that was more why I retweeted it than it was me like, co-signing it and saying I necessarily agree. I actually, reading what Mario said, I, I wanted to talk to him more about it because I find it hard to believe that that's really going to be the case, what he laid out. And I think there are probably more questions that need to be answered about the specifics. Like, who are these extra spots going to if you do expand the tournament? Are they just more at-large bids for high-major, mediocre teams to, to get in? Or is it for conference champions during the regular season or something like that? Do you have another idea that gets a more diversified tournament field? Um, because I think there are more interesting ways to do that. And for, for Mario's point about the idea that uh, high major coaches would take more chances and risks and be more fun schedulers if they were able to expand the tournament and they weren't they did. They had more wiggle room, I guess, so to speak, in their schedule. And, and he was talking about things like playing in multiple exempt events and playing mid-majors at their place or playing more rivalry-type games. I I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I he would know way more about it than me, so I'm not going to uh, say he's wrong. But I just would need that explained better to me about what incentive high-major coaches would have to do, to do with that. I mean, like... It seems to me that they're continuing they're going to continue to use those opportunities to schedule wins and try to reach incentives that are in their contract to make more money and keep their job and and they all have these big buyouts now to where as long as you can say hey I made the tournament last year chances are you're going to be able to keep that job for another year. So I I don't know that I'm buying what Mario's selling in that regard but again I mean he he knows this world so much better than I do that I just need to hear the farther explanation of what he's saying because uh, maybe there's there's more to it that would make it make more sense or maybe it includes providing different incentives for your coaches when you when you do contracts going forward I don't know but uh, to me I just find it hard to believe that out of the goodness of their hearts coaches are going to decide to like yeah let's make college basketball more exciting and, and schedule better well, now games. here's here's the other question that i had that was my first thought when i saw this from mario it, is the trade-off worth it where you make november and december maybe a tad bit more exciting but you dilute the march tournament right like how many people outside of diehard hardcore college basketball fans are going to tune in when they aren't tuning in already are you really attracting that many more casual fans in November and December? Maybe you are, and I'm just putting this out there. But it, if it sounds like you're going for the more casual fans to make things more exciting in the first two months of the season as opposed to January, February, and then, of course, March, but then in March you make the tournament a little more diluted because you have 22 more teams in the tournament – is that the trade-off you're going for when the NFL and everything's still going on? I don't know because I'm gonna. Well, I'm still watching, but is is Johnny in Alabama still watching? You know, I don't know. To be clear, just looking at a couple replies Mario had back and forth with people, I don't think he's talking about adding 22 teams. I think he wants it to be much more limited than that. So um, the the number that was thrown around, what was it like, ninety uh, something? Teams 90, now? 90 was the, the number because they recommended 25%, which would be about 90. Okay. I, I don't know how many exactly Mario wants to add, but I don't think that there's going to be any issue with the NCAA tournament. People are still going to tune into that. They're still going to get excited about it. It's still going to be huge for gambling. It's still going to be huge because people get off work early and 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 get out of class early. Like that's what makes the NCAA tournament great. There are a lot of good games within it, but that's still going to be a thing. And I don't think that will be ruined. So I don't worry about them ruining March so much. I guess the question would be: Do you just make all of these high major conferences 
kind of pointless once you get it like once you get into sec or big 10 play did those games mean as much or are basically all of the teams going to make it yeah and that's my biggest issue as well i mean obviously i i would not be in favor of any sort of expansion i, I guess the only sort of justification i would have if they were to expand past 68 if you leave enough spots for the mid majors, the low majors, uh, the regular season champions that don't go on to win their conference tournament tournaments, because you see that all the time, especially in those one bid leagues where the top seed, the regular season winner gets upset. And as a result, they have to settle for the NIT. Um, but even then that would sort of dilute the whole purpose of the conference tournaments to, to get that auto bid and, you know, the, the sort of special, um, I guess exclusivity of it, but I mean, I, I guess we'll see again to your point. Uh, it, it sounds like there will be different sort of uh, managers or some sort of way to, to oversee all the different sports and the championships uh, with these recommendations. So I guess it would not apply to March Madness, or I guess it would, I hope it would not apply to March Madness. So I, I guess that just remains to be seen. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And I mean, I will say what Mario laid out there today in his tweet is fascinating to think about i mean if that's if he really believes that's the case and there's an explanation behind it more than than what's on the surface i'm totally willing to listen to that and i'd love for it to be the case uh, i mean i'd much rather see high major teams going to mid-major teams gyms yeah. playing them there like the uc at nku game this year was awesome for local fans if you even like i mean you're not a fan of either program you came down to that one i think you had a oh, good yeah. time and saw an, an entertaining game so i think things like that are good for the region good for basketball fans good for growing the game i'm just not buying in that coaches are really going to be bold enough to start taking chances just because they have a couple more games to work with. I think, if anything, they'll probably schedule another bye game into their slate and, and see if they can get themselves another win to get closer to some milestone that they have to hit to get a bonus. Well, and the other thing, too, and this idea was floated out there. I think, was it, I forget who it was, um, floated that idea out there for basically the flex scheduling at the end of the season. Well, how, how is that not a thing? We used to have the bracket busters, but like the 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 opportunity at around the end of the season to to mix and match your schedule to maybe play some games that you, against other teams that you might need to win and I, I feel like that could do just about the same thing and even build more excitement there at the end of the year. Yeah, there I think there are a lot of fun scheduling things that you could come up with. The problem is I just don't think any of these high major coaches that control the sport and they're obviously their athletic directors and presidents are going to go for any of it because they've got it made already. They just they, like, there's no real, real incentive for any of these major programs to try to add value to the rest of the sport. They're good. Yeah. Yep. All right. One, one thing that I had somebody write in a comment or a question and ask uh, if the West Virginia slide is any potential worry for the non-conference schedule. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say worried, but it is kind of wild when you look at West Virginia and that they're 25th in Ken Palm. They're 10-4 and four on the year. But their best win is Florida out in Portland. They won 84-55. to 55. Outside of that, I mean, they've played a bunch of good teams, Purdue, Xavier, Kansas State, Oklahoma State. They've lost all of them. Yeah, I mean, they're not a great team. Uh, the question is just going to be where do they end up in the net? And the, and the answer is they were probably never going to be a quad one game being that it was at home. They had to be top 30. They're probably not going to finish in the top 30 of the net. And we knew, I mean, we've talked about that multiple times. So it, uh, it almost certainly be a quad two game, I would assume. And that's, that's really the only impact it has is it's going to be a quad two game instead of quad one, which I think we all kind of knew. Yep. Um, and then the last question I see here from scoops, what team or teams has surprised you the most so far in Big East conference play? Uh, we talked about that a little bit already. I would say Marquette is probably the biggest one for me. And uh, I Marquette and Butler were my two picks to click on the preseason podcast. I hit on one. I missed on another. Butler looks not great. Marquette looks very good. They're 4-1. and one. They won tonight at St. John's. Andre Corbello did not play. Marquette, though, 12-4 and four on the season. They have risen on the year from where they started at 76. They are now 18th on Ken Palm. Shock is smart. They've got it going. They're eighth in the country offensively, 76 – or sorry, that Xavier is. Marquette's fifth in the country offensively, 79th defensively. Um, 
They've had a very, very good year. I don't know how much you've seen of them, Rick, but they've been playing well. They are. Yeah, I mean, yep. they're ahead of Xavier now in cutting Palm. So, yep. like I said, these next three games are all big games, would all be huge wins, but you're also in a spot with Xavier in the way they're playing right now where being that two of those games are at home, you feel like there's the possibility they could go two and one in those three games. Yep. All right, we'll end the podcast with this, Rick. I, I said it in the preseason podcast with the predictions. I said they'd win at Villanova this year for the first time. I'm sticking with it. What do you say? I'm with you. I think they get it done at Villanova this year. It's just a different situation entirely, and, and the style of this Villanova team is playing right now, the things that they do well. I think it bodes well for Xavier. I'm going to say Xavier gets it done on the road at Villanova finally. There it is. Xavier fans, you have it. We'll talk to you next week. This has been the Musketeer Report podcast. Thanks for everybody who's listened in over the last hour and 15 minutes or so. And uh, hopefully this turns out well in podcast form. And and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, everybody.